All right. Happy Easter. It's great to see everybody. I can't tell you how excited I am to be with you all today. It's a great and beautiful day. It's been a long time coming. I was thinking it's a year ago. We gathered in this parking lot for the very first time, our very first parking lot service. Anybody, anybody remember that? Were you there? Yeah, we had, we had it flipped around, so we were up against that wall. We were on the back of a U-Haul trailer. It was raining, and everybody was in cars. You remember that? Look how far we've come. Come on. It's so good to see you all. It's good to see faces. Last year at Easter, preaching to cars. It was great that we got to do something, but this is way better. Um, yeah, thanks everybody for coming out. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot today. Everybody got excited already? Excited about that? Um, I just want to talk about what it is we're doing here. So Easter Sunday, we obviously are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We come out to celebrate something that happened, a historical fact that happened 2,000 years ago, give or take, in uh, Jerusalem. And I want to ask the question, what does that mean today? What does it mean today? It's, it's kind of the, the so what question. Because it's one thing to say, okay, we're celebrating this historical fact that was interesting, important, you know, world shifting in a way at the time. But it's another thing entirely to suggest, which is exactly what I'm suggesting, that we are celebrating today a current reality. Not something that simply happened, but something that is happening that when the world changed on that day, 2,000 years ago, it has stayed changed in ways that really, really matter for our daily lives. And so I want to talk about that briefly today. What happened on Easter Sunday? In my family, when we tell a story, you start out a story like this. You say, what happened was, everybody with me? What happened was, on Easter Sunday, Jesus became king. Okay. First thing, I've got three points today. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell you in advance. They're just going to be kind of surprise. I'm going to spring them on you by surprise. The first one is, on Easter Sunday, a new king was crowned. A new king was crowned. We start with Jesus, okay? It's important that at some point we get to us, but we don't start with us. I'll tell you a secret about reading the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible well, don't start with yourself. Don't come to it and say, hey, what can I get out of it today? What's the little nugget? What's the, 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 sort of, the sort of droplets that the Holy Spirit wants to sprinkle on me today? You guys seen that Instagram account, a sprinkle of Jesus? Let's see if we can get that shut down because it's not just a sprinkle we're interested in. We want the whole ocean. And the way you get the whole ocean is you don't start with you, you start with him. So when you read the Bible, the first question I want you to ask if you want to learn how to read the Bible well is who is God? What does this passage reveal to me about the character and the nature of God? And we start with that question today. I want to talk in a second about what Easter Sunday means for you, for us. But before we get there, what does it mean for Jesus? That it means that he was crowned king of the world. I was reading, uh, reading through the Gospels, and this, this passage we just read, Luke 24, is one of my favorite passages, especially that bit on the road to Emmaus when Jesus meets with the two disciples. I love this story so much because it's just kind of magical. If you've been reading the Gospel of Luke to this point, it's kind of heavy. You know, there's these heavy moments as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He's talking about his death, and it feels like you can feel the weight of the world on his shoulders. And then you get to Luke 24 after the resurrection, and he, he encounters this couple on the road, and it's like he's playing with them. It's suddenly playful and light, and there's this, like, essence to the story, an effervescence, where there's, like, it's bubbling, almost, this excitement in Jesus. And it's really fascinating, because they, they say, Jesus, you know, he says, what's, what's wrong with you, basically? You're on the road, you see him down in the mouth, what is going on? And they say, haven't you heard what happened? 
and they kind of go into this woe is us story. We had this guy that we thought was going to be something, but then he was crucified and on and on and on. And Jesus says something fascinating. He says, are you kidding me? He said, how slow you are to understand everything that was written. And it said, it is written that the Messiah must suffer and die. Now, I, I tried to do an extensive word study, but I couldn't figure out how to do it with my software. But I think this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus refers to himself as Messiah. All throughout the rest of the Gospel, he calls himself Son of Man, which is an interesting and kind of abstract title that none of them, just like none of us, knew exactly what to do with. It's this kind of shadowy character out of Daniel that Jesus refers to himself as. But here, he very clearly says, The Messiah had to do these things. And if you know what that word Messiah means, it means the anointed one, the king. And so finally here, after the resurrection, Jesus is willing to say what they wanted him to say all along. They had been desperate for him to announce himself as the king. Desperate for him to say, here it is, we're going to go. And now after the resurrection, he says, the Messiah did that. And then sitting at the dinner table, as he broke the bread, they realized he was the one they had been waiting for. The king had been crowned. Jesus announced himself the Messiah, the the anointed king, in his resurrection. And it's fascinating because this is exactly what the early church did with this. They realized that the fact that he rose from the dead means that he defeated the powers of sin and death. And now, because of that, he reigns as king of the world. This is what they thought. Somewhere along the lines in our church tradition, we made it about Jesus being our personal savior. Now, I want to be very clear on this. Jesus is our personal Savior. He came to save us personally. He loves us individually as people. He sees us one by one. He knows our name. Yes, all of it's true. But I want to tell you something about that line, Jesus is my personal Savior. It's found nowhere in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's part of the truth. And the way we get the Bible really wrong is by only telling part of the truth. And the whole truth that the early church, that Jesus himself announced and the early church believed with all their hearts was that Jesus is king. And the reason he can save you personally in the ways that you need to be saved is because he is the king. You start there. You start with the kingship of Jesus over all creation. And I'm not talking kind of abstract king, everybody. I'm talking about reigning right now in this place and over this place. It's all his. We're all his. The fact that he's king means he gets to say what he wants to say about us. He gets to tell us what to do and what not to do, where to go and what, where not to go. He has the say over our lives. He's the king. The early church got this. A guy named Paul understood this fact deeply. Now, he didn't at first. He didn't at first, because you remember, Paul, before he was Paul, he's this guy Saul, and he's going around persecuting the church because he thought they were heretics. Here they are announcing that this Jesus, who was crucified, is the Messiah, and Paul's sitting here and saying, there is no way this Jesus can be the Messiah. I'll tell you why. The word Messiah means anointed by God. It means favored. It means blessed. And that guy hung on a tree. And when he died, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul thinks these guys are nuts because how could the Messiah, the anointed, blessed, favored one, be cursed and and abandoned by God? Until he saw him risen. He met him risen on the road. 
And he was blinded, and the Bible says he was blinded for three days. And I like to think through what was going on in Paul's mind as he sat in darkness for those three days. Because you know who Paul was? He's a Pharisee. This means he had the entire Old Testament committed to memory. People said of, 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 of people like Paul that they could take a pushpin and stick it into the pages of the Torah. And by the depth of the pin, they could tell you where the point of that pin had landed, what letter of the alphabet it was on. Whether that's true or not, it speaks to how much they knew the Bible. And so I imagine as Paul sat in darkness for all those days, he was saying, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, I read about this son who will be born to us, this anointed one, that, 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 that the, the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I, I read about this anointed, blessed, and favored one. And that's what I thought Messiah would be. And I knew that Jesus couldn't be that because he wasn't those things. He was hung on a cross. But then I saw him risen. And I realized that that Isaiah 9 character could also be the Isaiah 53 character. The servant who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And in those three days, Paul's mind was just exploding as he said, could it be? Could they be the same person? Yes, because he's risen. You see? The suffering servant of Isaiah 59 is the conquering king of Isaiah 9, and the resurrection proves it. And so Paul was transformed in his thinking as he saw the risen Jesus. And he went on from there to write in the book of Philippians that because he humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul also wrote this. He said, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, which is his body, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul realized the resurrection proves that he was the king, that he is the king, and he reigns now. We start with Jesus. The resurrection means he's king of the world. And that means something for us. If he's king, if what happened was Jesus became king, then what also happened was a new world was born. A new world was born. When Jesus was crowned king, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. A space in which, by the power of the Spirit, God's will is done on, heaven as, uh, in, on earth as in heaven. He inaugurated that kingdom. He kicked off the restoration of all things with his kingship, with his resurrection. And we are currently living in this new reality, this new world that has been born. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's really simple. It says this, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how Mark kicks it off. All the other gospel writers have some kind of long and flowery introduction. Mark just calls it straight like it is. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Son of God. And you might think that sounds generic, but he's being very intentional here. That word gospel for us, that's a Christian word. It's a word that the church invented that we use only in church circles. Hardly anybody else uses it outside of the church. Except for the movie Hercules, Disney's Hercules. Anybody? 
All right, anyway, apart from that, it's only a church word. But in the ancient world, in the Roman world, it was a common word. It was an ordinary word. It meant good news. And you know, one time in history where it was used very famously outside the Bible was this guy named Vespasian, who was emperor of Rome. When Vespasian ascended to the throne, he ascended the throne after a couple of years of war with three other generals. It was called the Tetrarchy. So there were four guys that were fighting for power. And Vespasian ultimately conquered each of the other three and became Caesar, or became the, the, the emperor of Rome. And when he did, he sent out a, a note by, via messenger all around the empire. And the note began exactly like Mark 1 did, except for instead of Jesus the Messiah, it said Vespasian. That this is the good news, the gospel, that Vespasian has conquered. And what he was saying was, the war is over, it's okay to come out of your house. That letter went out just years before Mark wrote his letter. You think he did it on purpose? <laughs> yes, he's using this common medium, this common form of language to say, look, you thought it was good when Vespasian ascended the throne. I want to tell you that there is a king to which Vespasian will bow a knee, who has ascended the throne, not just of the Roman Empire, but of heaven and earth, and now the world has changed and it's safe to come out. He's telling us, it's okay, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Because he's conquered all of our foes. All of them have been beaten. It's crazy to think about. The Jews expected their Messiah to conquer the Roman Empire. The church began to understand that Jesus had no interest. He would do that eventually by his own ways. But he was interested in a much higher goal. He didn't want to conquer just the Roman Empire, but he wanted to conquer the powers, sin, and death. Principalities and powers, the things that hold us in slavery. You have to understand, a lot of times when we talk about the cross, we talk about our guilt. We come there with our guilt and we lay it at the feet of Jesus. And that's a part of the gospel. But another part of the gospel is that we are also victims of the powers. You guys have read Genesis 3. There was a serpent involved. You remember that? That came and tempted, that had, that had evil plans for God's creation. And if you're new to church, this may sound a little crazy. You might think I'm nuts, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I mean, everything I've done today is nuts if you're new to church. It, it just doesn't make much sense. But the Bible says that there are spiritual powers that hold us in slavery, that keep us in oppression, and that we are not only guilty. We are, don't get me wrong, we are guilty, but we are not only guilty, we are also victimized by the powers. And the Bible is really clear. When Jesus died on the cross, he nailed the powers to the cross. Powers that oppress, powers of injustice, powers of slavery, powers of any kinds. He nailed them to the cross to set his people free. And now we have, a, we have a responsibility to come and bring our sin as well. And Jesus conquered that at the cross as well. He came and he broke the power of the powers over us. And so now all of our sins, which were coping mechanisms for dealing with the world that the powers had created. Dealing with systems of oppression. How do you get by in an oppressed place? Well, you do all sorts of stuff to get by, whatever you need to do to survive. And Jesus came and said, you don't have to do that anymore. What made sense before doesn't make sense anymore. There's a new king and there's a new world. He defeated the powers, he defeated sin, and he defeated death. And this one is mind-blowing. He defeated death. There's a poet named John Donne wrote this great poem. He said, death thou shalt die. Jesus has conquered death. And I just wonder if, if we got that in our minds, that there was a man who was crucified and went into a grave and rose by his own power, never to return again, and then promised 
that anyone who followed him could do the same, could follow him into the grave and then out again. That's what he said, right? Anybody with me? That's what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die, and whoever lives by believing, whoever believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will, ne- will never die. Do you believe this, he says? Canopy Church, do you believe it? That's what he said. Paul said that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits of the resurrection. That there are more to come after him. That's what he said. And if that's true, the world is fundamentally different. Because you know what? I think that the death shadow that we all live under is our primary motivator for almost everything as human beings. It's why we do and don't do everything that we do and don't do. And what if that just wasn't on the table anymore? What if we saw death for what it is? It's just a shadow that we pass through into radiant light. It's real. It's scary. I don't know if you've ever been in the shadow of a big cliff that seems like it's going to fall on you. It's, I'm not saying it's nothing. Anybody who's lost someone knows it's not nothing. It's real. But if we're a follower of Jesus, it's just a shadow, my friends. And on the other side is resurrection, is full life. And if that's true, everything is different. Everything is different. We can live with a whole new motivation. No longer to avoid or prolong life. It's it's no longer cautious and safe. We can live boldly, fearlessly, generously, It's crazy to think, and I don't have the time or the energy or the imagination to say what could be different, but I feel like everything could be different if we just really believed this. Death is a shadow and resurrection awaits us. I think we'd be a lot more compelling, don't you? That was the early church. They changed the world. The early church changed the world. Because they believed this. You know what it says in the book of Revelation about the early church? Get this. It says they conquered the the beast, right? They conquered the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Do you hear that? Now, I'm not suggesting we be crazy and reckless and all this sort of stuff, but I'm saying we be fearless because there is nothing to fear. What risks would you take if you knew you couldn't lose? How would you live differently if you knew the outcome had already been written? It has, my friends. The Lamb has won. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. The resurrection is open. It's a whole new world. And so I asked the question, what does that mean for you? What happened was there's a new king. What happened was there's a whole new world. What happened was there's a new story for you. As individuals, as people, there's a new story for you. The kingdom is open for you. The restoration has begun. The restoration has begun. Jesus is writing a new story. What does that mean? It means there's a new identity available to you. Here at Canopy, we we have these three C's. Say you have been claimed by God. That this identity that you have been given is secure, not because of who you are, but because of what he has done. Because he died and rose again, you have been claimed by God as beloved daughters and beloved sons, and nothing can change that. That is an unassailable identity. It's yours in Christ. It's who you are. Period. If you have bowed a knee to this Jesus, 
Now, what we used to say in evangelical circles is if you have accepted Jesus into your heart, let's change that because he's the king. Look, if he wants into your heart, it's his. So instead of saying, have you accepted him, let's say, have you bowed a knee to him? Have you accepted his invitation into the kingdom and the restoration? If so, you are his. You are claimed. You have an identity that cannot be taken, that cannot be changed, and now you can live out of that identity instead of what the rest of us are doing most of the time, which is trying to live into identity. We're trying to become something, to make ourselves enough, but what if you already were? What if you were enough right now because of what Jesus has done? That you are as loved, as accepted, as wonderful, as radiant as you will ever be right now if only you'd believe it. What if that was true? It's the resurrection means it is true. You have been claimed by God. We also have another C, that you have been commissioned by God. Commissioned by God. This means that you have a new purpose. The resurrection gives you a new purpose. The Gospels, or in the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, the, the, the early church said this thing. They said, Jesus has risen from the dead, and we are witnesses of these things. They saw themselves as ambassadors of resurrection. This was their new purpose. God had given them a new mission, a new reason to live. And that's going to work itself out differently for all of us. Our, the specifics of our vocation are going to be different. But we all have a new purpose, which is to be witnesses of this truth. To be witnesses of the resurrection is to sow seeds of hope wherever we go, in whatever context we find ourselves. Because we're going to find ourselves in a world that's still pretty dark, that still finds itself under oppression to the powers, that still finds itself trying to cope, and we're going to come in and say, no, 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 that's not the end. There's a whole new story. And by the way that we live our lives as programmers, as marketers, as, as, as students, as Doctors and nurses, as custodians, whatever it may be, we can find opportunities. As artists, what if Christian art like, rose up again and took its place as, as the fountain of hope that it was always supposed to be, that it has been and, and, and is in pockets? What if we were known for creating the most hopeful and best art in the world? I don't know why I got on that rant. It just came to mind. Artists out there, be inspired. You're doing kingdom work. Any of you, whatever you're doing, you're doing kingdom work. You can sow seeds of resurrection and hope. You are witnesses. You have a new commission. And the other seed we say around here is you are covered by God. In other words, you have a new friend. <laughs> no means to demean the Holy Spirit because he's a lot more than just a friend. But it says he's not just with you. He's in you. It doesn't get much closer than that. The Bible uses this word for Holy Spirit. It's paraclete. It sounds like a bird. It's not a bird. It literally means one who calls out from alongside. Parakaleo, one who calls out from alongside. You know what his job is? I mean, lots of things. He empowers us for mission. He comforts us. He sustains us. He gives us, he, he opens our mind to understand the Bible. He teaches us to pray when we can't pray. But you know the way Jesus described him in the book of John, Parakaleo, one who calls out from alongside. It's a defense attorney. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Bible's really clear when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, sitting on his throne with the Father, that he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf. So when the accuser comes and accuses us to the Father, Jesus is saying, no, no, this one's with me. So we have an intercessor in heaven. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He's our intercessor on earth. And if 
if Jesus is interceding to the Father, who do you think the Holy Spirit's interceding to? To you. He's calling out to you. When you are tempted to doubt that this is true, when you are tempted to try to find your identity somewhere else, the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, he calls out and he says, no, remember who you are. Your identity is secure. You don't need to find yourself in this job, in this relationship, in this, in this bank account. You can find yourself elsewhere. Your identity is real and secure. He intercedes for you, with you, to remind you that everything's true. All of this, because Jesus rose from the dead. There's a new king. There's a new world. There's a new story for you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it?